0: two mentioned in dispatches the podcast and the western front association i'm dr tom thorpe the wfa is uk's largest great war history society we are dedicated to furthering understanding of the first world war and have over 60 branches worldwide for more information visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com it is the 11th of september 2017 and this is episode number 31 This week's interview is with Dr Vivian Newman on the role and experience of women in the Great War. Vivian is an author who explores the lives and occupations of women in Britain and Europe during the First World War. She is a regular speaker at WFA Branches and has authored a number of books. Her publications include We Also Served, The Forgotten Women of the First World War, Nursing Through Shot and Shell, A Great War Nurses Diary, and Tumult and Tears, the story of the Great War through the eyes and lives of its women poets. These three are published by Pen and Sword. I spoke to Vivian via the miracle of internet telephony from her home in Essex. Vivian, welcome to the show. I wonder if you. you could start by giving us a brief introduction to your background interests, and involvement with the Great War.
1: Indeed. Well, I can actually I don't think I can remember ever not being interested in the in the Great War. It came about because my grandfather was a surgeon with the RAMC in France. He actually arrived in November 1914. And after the war, he worked with shell-shocked soldiers. And although, sadly, I never knew him, my mother used to tell lots of stories about him and um, some of the things that he'd done. So that was sort of the starting point. So It was always part of my family history. And then, of course, like most of my generation, I learned about the war poets. And I dared to ask a teacher at school if women had written poetry about the Great War. Well, I was firmly sat upon and, and told, don't be so silly, women didn't do anything in the war, um, and they certainly didn't write poetry. And it stayed in the back of my mind that that actually probably wasn't a very good answer. So let's fast forward to a number of years. And I began to wonder again about um, women in the Great War and their war poetry. And I decided to find out if this teacher of long, long ago had been right. And so that interest actually led to a PhD in um, women's war poetry, a scholarship and a generous travel bursary from the WFA, for which I am still grateful to this day, as it enabled me to hunt out women's war poems in obscure archives and discover that women actually had written a huge amount of poetry, which very much like the the men's poetry told us about their experiences in the Great War and all the things that they'd done and all the things that they poeticised. So that in a nutshell is me, the Great War and war poetry.
0: I wonder whether we could actually start by looking at the social, political and cultural position of women in Edwardian Britain before the war and how they were were regarded generally in society and maybe how women actually regarded themselves.
1: Yeah, of course. So you've got really, I suppose, broadly two categories of women. You've got those who needed to work for their living, and then the more privileged women who, to quote Virginia Woolf, had nothing to do all day and all day to do it in. So that's sort of late Victorian, um, Edwardian times in a huge generalization. But in the very late 19th, early 20th century, this started to change for some women who became deeply involved in the various suffrage organizations, either the militant suffragettes led by the famous Emmeline and Christabel Pankhurst, or the constitutional suffragists who were led by Millicent Fawcett. And suffragism proved to be the ideal preparation for women's wartime activities. Lena Ashwell, a member of the um, constitutional suffragists who founded the Concert Parties for the Troops movement, believed, and I think she just sums it up perfectly, that if there had not been the preparation of the suffrage movement, the women would have been able to do as little as in previous wars, she wrote. The women who had come out of comfortable homes and had suffered hardships were getting ready to fight a bigger battle to escape slavery. And in fact, it was their suffrage experiences that enabled them. They were primed. They were ready to go. They had organizational skills. They had public speaking skills. They had fundraising skills. They basically had the ability to stand up to authority. So they were really just ready to march to war which they wouldn't have been able to do if they hadn't had that suffrage experience. And this is something that I think is so often overlooked by historians who write about women in the Great War. They don't look at the two, three decades of preparation they had. So that by August 1914, they simply transferred all that they had learnt from their experiences in the suffrage. And they used in modern terms their transferable skills and they were ready to support the war effort.
0: So when the war broke out in August 1914, how did uh, women react? Obviously, we're talking about a demographic of 20 million people. So yes, making generalisations on that is obviously quite quite difficult. Quite. But but how did they react and what sort of roles did they obviously go into in the war?
1: Right. Well, you first of all, and obviously we're not going to talk about them, them today, but we'll just say that there were the um, women who were pacifists and remained pacifists. And again, they used their suffrage experience to try and build bridges with um, women in um, the belligerent countries, but they were they were reviled and um, fell very foul of many of their suffrage sisters and also the authorities. So we leave them to one side because they're sadly not who we're going to talk about today. So we get the others who reacted with um, excitement very much like um, a number of men. This was a great, great opportunity to do something totally different. And then we have the women who reacted with enormous determination to do their bit. And others who were professional women, such as the surgeons and the doctors, who felt that this was an opportunity to raise the profile of professional women. And they would also be able to, to serve by using their professional skills. So you get the, the amateurs who want to do something and the professionals who are determined to help the nation and also promote their own cause or professionalism,
0: if you like. So what sort of roles did did women do in the war? I know this is often a very um well tr- well-worn path with the canary workers in the munition factories, but obviously there was a very very broad range of, of roles that women took up. Could you just give us a flavour of what they were?
1: Of, of course, well obviously as you say we we've, we've got the mu- munitionettes, um a term coined by the Daily Mail in very much the way that they Coined the term suffragettes. Um, the ETE was supposed to be a slightly sort of derogatory ending to the word. So we've got the munitions workers, we've got obviously the, the professional nurses, the members of the Queen Alexandra's Imperial Military Nursing Service and the territorial um, wing of the QAMNS. You've got the VADs, the volunteer nurses um, from the Red Cross. But of course you've also got you've got the, the doctors, you've got the ambulance drivers, you've got spies. Not necessarily what well, we don't know very much about the, the British spies, but we've got spies working for Britain and obviously against Britain in in France, um, stretcher bearers, wax, wrens, rafts, you name it, apart from bearing arms. And there is one exception. One British woman did bear arms with the Serbian army. But basically, apart from bearing arms, you mention it and you'll find a woman or women serving in that in that role. So it was right across um all the areas that, of war, you're going to find women, and of course the land army as well. You have them on the home front, and you have them on the fighting fronts as well, or close
0: to the fighting fronts. So, what was the motivation of women to volunteer? Obviously, it depended on on their civilian or military roles. And obviously, taking generalisations aside, can you give us a flavour of some of the, the the views that women, you know, uh, wrote down about why they why they volunteered and how they found their work?
1: They volunteered really because well you've got the women who needed to find work so there we're talking very much about the women who go, go into the factories because initially a lot of women were thrown out of work because of the because of the war and so they're desperately looking around to find paid employment and that brought some of the women into the into the factories then you get we could for example take the women's police service that was established during during the war and that looks back to the suffrage beginnings where the women found that it was not appropriate for women to be arrested by men. And when the Belgian refugees started to appear, there was a feeling that they needed help through a police service and they needed policing in a positive sense of the word. So you get women who are deciding to set up a voluntary police service and that becomes incorporated eventually into the into the mainline mine police. So they are looking for a role that they can fulfill to help other women. And then the government corps sees that they are actually doing quite a good job. And so they become involved in, in policing. And then you get the um, Fannies, the first aid nursing yeomanry, who feel that they have a role to play overseas. They're aware that the Belgian and the French armies are desperately short of ambulance drivers. So they offer their services to to them. And then you get women such as the members of um, what became known as the Scottish Women's Hospital Unit. Their leader was told when she offered her services um, in Edinburgh, she was told, dear lady, go home and sit still. And she decided the one thing she wasn't going to do was sit still. So she organised a hospital unit, which she offered to the French and eventually to the Serbs, and they've ended up being fourteen fifteen units serving over overseas so so women were constantly looking for roles, seeing a gap and filling that gap.
0: I think you intimated my next question what which was obviously for many people in Edwardian society the role the idea of women working was a was a major challenge to the established patriarchal order, and they, the, the authorities I would imagine actually probably stood against this and 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 maybe had a very to say reactionary attitude to this am i correct or am i do i am i am i not
1: Broad, broadly you're correct obviously the you've got the working the working class and it was considered obviously they needed to work and as they sort of Hardly counted in um, sort of patriarchal view. So, as far as um, the middle classes and the upper classes were concerned, yes, that was very much a view. They should adorn the home and be the angel in angel in the home, and leave the public sphere to to men. And so, obviously, women becoming prominent in these these public spheres was a huge cho- shock to the to the established order. But eventually. Women were seen as being essential to the war effort, and their services were gratefully received for the duration.
0: And how how did women – I'm sort of diverting slightly how, – how, how were women treated by the all-male trade union movement? Essentially, invading the sphere of their members
1: very badly. In the in the factories, for example, there was um, there were attempts by the trades union to to make their life very very hard in the in the factories because men were there. Was, you've got two things going on: men very um, worried about their jobs, and also the fear that if women come into the factories, then obviously that's going to free up a men a man to fight. And so they they were concerned on on two fronts that first of all they they would lose lose their jobs to women that the men would end up fighting, and they were very frightened that if the women proved useful in the factories they might be kept on after the war. So there was there was a very negative attitude from many many trades unionists, and the government or the um, munitions factory owners were quite keen not to pay women at the same the same rate. And this was actually negotiated with the trade unions, that if women came in, they would be paid at a lower rate. And it was always said that they weren't able to do all the jobs. And so therefore, they were not as skilled as the men. And that was always the excuse, even though it ended up being untrue.
0: I read somewhere there was an amazing admission um, by the officials that a woman in certain types of profession was equal to one or two men, or the other way round rather, in terms of, you know, there was actually an official ratio that a woman could not work as well as a man. And, you know, I always found that quite amazing and how... That obviously would, was demonstrated not to be the case at the end of the war. But obviously, as women came into the workplace, the public sphere, the authorities and society and element society obviously imposed restrictions, prejudice and gender obstruction. How did women circumvent these, these, these challenges they found in, in, in the workplace? Well, in the factories, often they couldn't they because the they there was what was
1: called dilution and it was um three women would repla- replace two men and although they proved that there was almost they could do pretty well everything in the factories they were never able to get accepted on completely equal terms and that was something that despite them them fighting it they they were unable to change that that's that prejudice if you like Against them.
0: Now, so far we've talked about how broadly British women uh, coped with with the war. How what was the experience of women in other countries, such as Germany or the Dominions? I mean, I know it's a very broad question, but were there similarities?
1: There were. I mean, there's one fascinating German German woman who um, she's not really very well well known, but she ended up being probably the greatest spy master of them all. And she was um, called Elizabeth Schragmüller. And she was the first woman in Germany to actually earn a doctorate in um, political economy. And when the war broke out, very much like British women, she was determined to do her bit. And the German high command was equally determined that she wouldn't do her bit. But to cut a long story short, she eventually browbeat them in allowing her to go to Brussels, which of course was now occupied by by Germany. In Brussels, she was re- initially just given a job. She was a fluent French speaker um, as well as German. And she was given a job censoring Belgian soldiers letters to try and find out what their reactions were to the, to the war. And she proved so Astute and so good at picking out little bits of information from their letters and building up a broad picture about morale that she was then um, sent to the occupied city of Lille to start looking at French, any French soldiers' letters that they could come across. And from there, she was actually trained trained up into intelligence and was given the entire anti-French intelligence bureau to run. I mean, that is a huge job for a, for a woman. And she was also charged with recruiting spies to send um, into various French cities in non-occupied France to, to report back. And she became hugely successful as a spy master or spy spy mistress and she set up a whole spy training school and with a with a curriculum and she was very aware that espionage was a was a science that you could teach people. And she ended up with a whole network of, of spies, including ones working in the all-important port of Marseille, where they were spying on the shipping that was coming in, in and out. And she was behind the sinking of ships such as the Transylvania. And um, she she has been completely sort of overlooked, really, because she, she was so good at what she was doing that she managed to keep a very, very low profile, which of course is what you need for a spy handler.
0: I mean, that's a remarkable story. I think we need to do a separate podcast on her.
1: (laughs) She is a remarkable woman and um, a couple of her spies were equally remarkable. And I've actually got a book coming out about them, about Schragmuller and one of her spies that's coming out in October. And it's actually, um, hopefully, it will, it also deals with what was happening in far from neutral Switzerland.
0: That will be very interesting for other podcast listeners. I'm going to get a commitment if I can. Um, Absolutely. Yes, (laughs) I I
1: will commit to that as an idea, definitely. And maybe we could put a picture up of of, um, Schragmuller and her main spy because they are quite an interesting looking couple.
0: That sounds fascinating. Now, my final question, I think, comes to the end of the war. And once the, the armistice is um, called and the soldiers return home, what was the long term political, social and economic impacts of women's role in the First World War in terms of its impacts on society and culture?
1: Well, I think it's actually there's two very interesting um Newspaper articles that maybe sums it up. One was published on the twelfth of November, nineteen eighteen, in which the women were thanked for everything that they had done um, during the war and to to help to achieve victory. Because I actually going off down a side sideline, I do have an argument that without the women, we probably would not have won the won the war. And then a week later, an article appeared in the times, wondering when women were going to go back into what were use, euphemistically called trades that were so particularly their own, which actually means um, domestic service and being being skivvies. So almost as soon as the war ended, there was this feeling that women should get out of the um, public eye and go back into, into skivvying and into little roles where they were not really valued and under undervalued and underestimated. Another example, very much the opposite end, is um, medical schools. Now women had ended up in the latter part of the, the war, they had actually been serving as doctors and surgeons with the RAMC. And so they had proved um, that women were every bit as good um, at medicine as men. But by the early 1920s, there was actually a cap um, in all the medical schools on the numbers of women they would actually allow into university to trade trainers trainers doctors and that seems to just sum up the um the public reaction or the authorities' reaction to women thank you very much you were needed then now go home
0: and sit still incredible no vivian thank you very much for your time
1: you're welcome lovely to talk to you and we'll make a date for shrug
0: and her spies you have been listening to the mentioned in dispatches podcast from the western front association with me tom thorpe Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code bis 21 Nine five. Until next time,